When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. A couple of weeks ago, we hosted the writer Paul Kingsnorth at the Unheard Club. It took some persuading to get him to leave the farmstead in the west of Ireland where he lives and come to the metropolis, but we got there in the end. He's one of the most interesting and hard-to-pin-down thinkers, and in our conversation, I tried to trace his journey from left environmental activist to now faithful member of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Most of all, I wanted to hear about his famous concept of the machine and how we're supposed to resist it. I hope you find it as challenging and inspirational as I did. Tom Holland, who um, had a wonderful conversation with you on on Zoom, described you as Vartic, um, which I had no idea what that meant. I had to Google it. It actually means prophet-like. I don't think he meant that you were predicting the future, but I think he meant that you have an unusual sensitivity to things. You, you, You seem, it seems like you are able to be moved by things, able to access transcendental moments or sensations that maybe some of us caught up in our daily lives don't come across so often. Do you think that's true? And do you think right the way since the start of your life when you were writing and thinking mainly about the environment, it was that intuition, the way you responded to nature that started you on this whole process? Blimey, that's a big question to start with, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, it's a really interesting question. I don't know whether I'm more open to things than anyone else, but uh, I suppose I've always been a romantic soul in the sense that what I am open to seems something worth following. I mean, I, I think probably, probably like a lot of people here, I read a lot of books when I was a child. And if you read enough books um, when you're young, you realise quite quickly that the world that a lot of the books are describing is better than the actual world and you'd rather live in that. Uh, and so, so if you're reading the right books anyway. Uh, and so I, I was, I've always had a sort of sensitivity to things that are beyond the stories we're told about what the world is, I suppose, and spending a lot of time walking in the hills and things when I was younger, a lot of time in the natural world, um, just made me very open to that. And that was, and so I've always had an itch in the back of my mind or my heart or whatever that has told me that this the story of the culture I grew up in, which is a very uh, rational, very material story, is just not the full story. And that has, that's the reason I've never been able to have a proper job for very long, because I just, I can't sit on, I can't accept it. I can't accept that this culture is going in the right direction. And that sounds like a political claim, but it's not actually, it's more based on that, that sort of intuition that you're talking about there. There's the sort of draw to the positive, to the good things, the meaningful things, and then the parallel intuition, I suppose, is what you call the machine. You seem to be repulsed by or very aware of structures in the modern world that are 
keeping people away from yeah, the good things. Yeah, and it is an intuitive repulsion, actually. Again, it, it, can, it can channel it into politics and, and make it and argue about it, which you have sort of have to do. But I just have a sense that many of the, most of the things actually that a matter in life can't be measured, can't be pinned down, can't be explained, can't be rationalized. And when you create a society which is entirely based on, on, on this kind of rational technocratic solutionism, this kind of left hemisphere society, as Ian McGilchrist would probably call it, then you end up wiping out all of these kind of still small voices. You know, all of the things that actually matter uh, get pushed to one side because they can't be measured and they're not profitable. And, and so that, again, is a really, it's an intuition. And that's the thing that makes me kind of gag on, on this notion of the machine, on this technocracy that we're living in, because it's highly profitable and it's highly good at creating wealth and material things. But w w what is lost as a, as a result of that? What happens to the forests? What happens to the human communities? What happens to all of the actual small human experiences that matter in life? Well, they're, they're just pushed to one side or they're not out of existence. And I've seen that all over the world. And most of my writing has actually been about trying to find those small things and tell the stories of them and try to explain why they matter. It's, sometimes it feels futile because <laughs> it's not possible to explain why they matter. But that's why, you, that's why you work in stories. If you can tell people stories about things, it connects with them because we all know actually what's going on. I think at some level, intuitively, we can all feel this kind of loss, this great loss that's at the back of this supposedly successful, powerful, profitable, wealthy culture that we've built. Um, it destroys a lot of things that really matter. And probably a lot of what I've been trying to do with all of my words has been trying to name the things that really matter and explain why they matter, which is surprisingly hard in words. Actually, it turns out. Or maybe it's not a surprise. Do you think that if we kind of zoom back to the earlier days where you were basically an environmental activist, you were deputy editor of The Ecologist, your version of resisting the machine back then was a political resistance, wasn't it? You, you put your energies into basically environmental causes. Um, how do you now feel about those earlier efforts? Well, everything that I've... I had a lot of experiences as a child. My dad used to take me on little walks across the mountains a lot. I used to do a lot of camping, a lot of walking, a lot of getting soaked in the rain, a lot of having experiences out on the hills. Back in the 80s when I was a young lad in the Stone Age, you could actually go out into the wilds and you would be in the wilds because you go up a mountain and no one could take their smartphone or their Garmin up with them. And so you were actually literally cut off from things for days. And so that sank into me. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. I'm a very urban lad. Um, but that I had a profound series of experiences just in the natural world of spending a lot of time in it, being immersed in it. And so that felt to me like a, a spiritual experience, not that I would ever have used that word um, because I didn't grow up with that sort of background. But my environmental activism and my writing came from a desire to, again, to want to protect from destruction all of these things which I could see were actually very precious. Um, so one of the things that really radicalised me was when I was a student, I got involved in the road protest movement back in the 90s and uh, went up to Twyford Down, which is an ancient hill fort with an ancient woodland on the top of it, or it was, uh, and a beautiful hill in the Downs, and they were driving a motorway through it because they wanted to save 12 minutes on the journey from London to Southampton. And it seems to me that if you're living in a culture which wants to destroy a beautiful ancient woodland and a hill fort in the middle of, the, of, of, of Wiltshire because you want to save 12 minutes to drive from one city to another city, then you are screwed. You are utterly wrong. At, at a fundamental level, something is missing there. So I, you know, I was involved in the direct action there, and I 
got arrested and thrown into a cell, which was very exciting because I was 20 and I felt very brave and radical. Um, but that was it, really. And, and for me, that was a desire to prevent something that I considered to be precious and beyond words from being destroyed, which is what environmentalism was and is at its best. Well, let me ask you about that, because that is one of the... I, I said you've been on a journey. Mm. This is the American phrase that I just okay, uttered. OK, right. But your politics... <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good accent. <laughs> the environmental sort of part of that is an interesting one, because that's now more than 20 years ago, what, the, mm. what you're talking it's about. a long time ago now. And from your more recent writing, you seem to feel like that movement is no longer yours, or at least the, the, the dominant strain of environmental activism is, is now somehow tainted with the machine or something. Do, what, what do you think's happened there? And do you still think of yourself as an environmental oh, activist? I still think of myself as a nature lover. Uh, and I still think of myself as a green in the broadest sense. But no, I mean, to me, I have this, you talked about this thing called the machine, which is what I've been writing about for the last two years. And it's, it's just a name for this giant technocratic monster of a culture that we've built. It's not my name. I, it was used by everyone from D.H. Lawrence to R.S. Thomas to George Orwell. So I've stolen it from all the better writers and I'm, I'm trying to sort of keep the tradition going. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an, almost an intuitive sense of something that we've created, which is now running away from us and which turns us into machines as well, actually, in the way that we see the world. Um, and so to me, environmentalism in quite a romantic way was, was about resisting the machine, standing up against the machine's destruction of the natural world, which is also its destruction of our relationship with nature, because we're all part of nature. Um, and today, environmentalism, I think, in the mainstream anyway, has been swallowed by the machine. And it now has a technocratic approach to the natural world. So instead of using human language to talk about our human relationship with the natural world or the kind of cultures that we might like to build that would have a, a healthy relationship with it. We talk about carbon credits and biodiversity and carbon and sustainability and all of these kind of dead businessy words and almost the entire project of trying to prevent the planet from being destroyed by industrial civilization has become a, a project of, quote, sustainability, which basically means reducing carbon emissions. Now, good idea. I'm in favour of reducing carbon emissions, but it's become a, it's become a technocratic uh, monster. So if we can reduce carbon emissions by covering the fields in, 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 in uh, solar panels or covering the hills in, in vast wind power stations, we will do that. But what we won't do is question the relationship we have with nature or live more simply or try and change the basis of things. So what we're actually sustaining is the machine, we're trying to make the machine carbon neutral, seems to me. So perhaps I always had a foolishly, naively romantic vision of what was actually achievable. Probably I did. So what does the but good version of that look like then? If there, if there are two environmental worlds, you've described the, what you don't like, the, the bad version, which is just technological solutions and big top-down schemes. What does the good version look well, like? Well, it depends what you mean. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of good environmental work going on all the time. Um, there are people... Uh, there are people I know around me running sustainable farms. There are people rewilding land, which can be good. There are people protecting species. There are people living simply and in a, in a respectful way. There are people coming up with alternative ec economic structures. And this stuff has been around for a long, long time, at least since the 1950s or 60s, and, and probably much longer than that. So, um, but I don't think there's a way of getting from where we are to some sort of sustainable society in any big, broad sense. I think the, the, the point I've come to now is, um, you know, this thing is going to hit the wall and fall apart, which is already starting to do. And so if you want to do useful work, the useful work is usually done at the local scale, actually. There's lots of stuff going on. 
um, but it's not the sort of stuff that happens at the conferences and in the newspapers and according to the big grand plans to, to make the planet sustainable. Often those things do more harm than good. The living simply thing has now become a bit controversial, hasn't it? Because um, you live simply, I guess you would say. Well, not that simply. More simply than I used to, but not simply enough, probably. You have a composting toilet. Which I do have a famous composting toilet, which everyone, everyone always wants to talk to me about. I, well, we've done that already. I, don't, fine, don't I think it's the main thing that's interesting about me, actually. But it's become, <laughs> it's become this, it's, it's sort of flipped in the last few years, it feels like, where, where those people who wanted to push against what you call the machine and live more simply used to be the sort of activists on the fringes. And now the fear of those same people is that, you know, the, the, the centralised forces up on high are going to force them to live more simply. Mm. It's, it's sort of changed. Even in the last three or four years, it, I don't know if you noticed that, that there's this fear that you know, the, the, the elites mm. want people to you know, eat bugs yeah, and, so there's this whole, and, and whole eat reduce bugs, their, bugs their, in the pod thing. their quality yeah. of life all to sort of tick a box and please Bill Gates. That's yes. the kind of conspiracy. See, that's, what, what's, but that's what, not living simply. That's, I mean, that actually, the, the eat the bugs and live in the pod thing, is actually the inevitable result of what you're going to have to do if you want to make a giant industrial society sustainable because you do have to reduce outputs and emissions and things like that because we're taking too much and, and being too destructive. So if you want to continue living in this kind of hyper-technological way in which profit can be squeezed out of everybody all the time, which is really what it's all about, then you, you need a lot of measures in which people are, are forced to behave in certain ways and not to do certain things, but none of it's voluntary, right? So the, the notion of... of having the evil Klaus Schwab, uh, who nobody likes, sitting in his volcano and telling you what, what insects to eat, which is the, the, the fun theories that, that bounce around the internet. It's a way of, of kind of expressing the, the logical fear that actually the, the machine will become more totalitarian as it tries to clamp down on people's resource use. But for, for most people, I mean, the problem with resisting that narrative is what you can't do is say, well, we, we hate the Davos crowd and we hate Bill Gates and we're not going to eat the bugs. But we are, we are going to continue to live our high-pollution, high-emissions uh, lifestyle because we just have a damn right to do that. That's the kind of almost right-wing libertarian view. That's not good enough either. You, it's not sustainable to live like this, actually. That's where the Greens are right. So if you don't want to eat the bugs and live in the pod, you have to think about how else you're actually going to try and live um, more simply. But it's, you know, there, there's not a... When I was younger, I used to be being an arrogant left brain sort of little child. I wanted to come up with a big theory about how the world could be saved. Um, but there isn't, there isn't a big plan that's going to work. Big plans don't work. There's going to be a load of muddling along. But on a personal level, the more simply you can live and the closer to nature you can live, the better. And the more of this, the more you can't resist that kind of machine narrative if you're not actually living in a, in a so different way or trying days, to anyway. When you see on... I was about to say see on the TV, but you're probably not watching TV. You'll hear about uh, some Extinction Rebellion protest or, you know, today there was some group in Rome filled the Trevi fountain with charcoal as their, you know, th those kind of things. Which of your instincts is, does it appeal to? Does, does any part of you think, good on you, protest is important, this is a yeah. major issue? Or no, do you does. think this is now a kind of millenarian quasi-religion and they've lost the plot? Well, I think environmentalism has always been a, a quasi-religion, but I don't think that's necessarily bad, actually. I mean, it appeals to a religious instinct. It's the wrong religion, but it appeals to an instinct. So when I was younger, I probably would have been up for it. The problem I have with that sort of stuff is that it targets all the wrong people, and it's completely counterproductive, because what a lot of Extinction Rebellion and 
the Just Stop Oil crowd are doing is actually just really irritating people driving to work or trying to go to an art gallery. I mean, I don't understand the optics and the, and the, the, the political nous of destroying a painting. What are you doing? Destroying a thing of beauty because you want to stop oil? Are you, why are you doing that? Who are you targeting? What, what's, what's the plan? So just visually and strategically, I think it's actually quite stupid. But it's also a generation of people who feel quite despairing about the way everything's going. And even though some of the responses don't make sense, the, I, understand the, I understand the anger, actually, or, or just the, the confusion that's behind it all. Mm. Because you can see the way, you can see the mess that the machine is getting us into. You can see where it's heading. And none of the people running the thing seem to either have a clue what they're doing or have any answers to people's actual concerns. And also, I think that at a level below that, back at that intuitive level that we were talking about, a lot of people can feel there's something really wrong, actually, with all of this. And the direction it's going in and the way that we're living, people can feel that, but they don't even have the words to express it because we don't have the language to talk about those things in this society. We just have the language to talk about money, progress, growth, things that can be measured. So you think it's, the, it's possibly the right intuition misapplied? I think it's an inevitable intuition if you're living in this kind of beehive machine culture, yeah, that you want to, you want to fight back against this destruction of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the fighting back is useful or productive or effective. But it's understandable, especially when you're young. So far, I reckon most people would, would think you're still sounding quite left, activist, environmental. I, I now want to just take you to a whole other zone, which is you now get accused of being reactionary, you get accused of being right-wing. I think people have probably accused you of being a fascist. That seems to be a normal... Eco-fascist. Eco yeah, please. Get um, it right. That's the normal yeah. fare. Um, what are they on about? Why do they think... Um, what are they on about? We'd have to ask them, really. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think... I don't know what an eco-fascist is. I did write you a piece about this a while back, didn't I, about the way that this phrase is being used to try and shut down um, any notion of an environmentalism that's attached to place or culture or nature. And what people don't like, certainly what some left-wing environmentalists don't like about me, is that my environmentalism is probably more, I'm going to say conservative. Um, but, I mean, look, the Green Movement originally was quite conservative. It was quite small-c conservative. It came out of the, the conservation movement, and it was about conserving things, and that was a sense that... Um, the best way to live was precisely this kind of small-scale, localised, um, almost Tolstoyan or Gandhian way of living. That's the whole narrative that you'd hear from people like E.F. Schumacher or Leopold Kaur or the early pioneers of the Green Movement, that it was very much about simplifying, going back to the land, localising, etc. Um, now, as environmentalism has become more technocratic, it's also become more left-wing. It's been very much colonised by the left, who now see it as their movement. And, of course, the left is, is not in favour of localization, small-scale things, conserving things, or cultures rooted in the land. As soon as they hear you talking about the land or place, they hear blood and soil fascism, and so they start shouting at you. Um, and it's caught up in the culture war, in which everyone wants to shout at everybody else. Um, so there's a sense that the left thinks it owns environmentalism, uh, and that because the left has become very machine-like and technocratic, it doesn't like an environmentalism which might be promoting that actually going back to something that worked might be a better way of doing things. And I have, I have more, more of that tendency. But it's, again, it's not a political tendency. I don't have a plan. I don't think that that's, you know, and it's more of a, an intuition that um, environmentalism has to be about 
connection and relationships, people's relationship to place, people's relationship to the culture that comes from that place, people's relationship to nature and to each other. And that's not something you can have in a, in a kind of globalised machine culture, which militates against all of those relationships. It unsettles everything and breaks everything up and, and, and throws us out all over the world following the money. That's what we're all supposed to do. So that's probably where that comes from. I guess one event that we both went through, we all went through, uh, in recent years was the COVID pandemic. Um, that was another one of these weird moments where people's sort of politics were completely scrambled, their worldviews were scrambled, all sorts of people found themselves in, in the company of people they didn't normally agree with. What was your experience of that? It, it feels like you, you were quite moved by it. Well, I got, I got a good cancelling for that, actually. Um, I, for what? Uh, well, because I, I wrote a series of essays about the response to COVID, which it seemed to me was a machine response. And we talked about this. We had a little video thing about this, didn't we? Which, which a lot of people watched and a lot of people wrote to me and told me they felt the same about. Um, I was, you know, as somebody who'd been on the left, this was very interesting to me. When I was young, the left was against uh, corporate power and it was against state power and it was against pharmaceutical companies, which they thought were corrupt and bad. And it was certainly in favour of uh, free, free speech and free move, uh, free uh, association and protest. Um, and during COVID, that all swivelled round. And suddenly, a lot of my friends who I would consider to be leftish, liberalish people, were now all in favour of draconian state power, all in favour of vaccine passports, all in favour of shutting everything down, all in favour of, of, of removing from the internet anyone who wanted to question any of this, including me. Um, and I thought that was tyrannical, and I still think it was tyrannical. <laughs> I think it was a completely disastrous response. And I live in Ireland. In Ireland, we had a vaccine passport system where you couldn't go out anywhere for six months if you didn't have your digital ID, and I wouldn't have a digital ID or a vaccine. Um, and so uh, we had to sit and watch all of the newspaper columnists calling us neo-Nazis and conspiracy theorists, so that was nice. Um, and it's just, it was, a, it was an insanity. It was an insanity, but it was an example of machine overreach. It was an example of digital control. It was an example of how you can construct a system to monitor and manage absolutely everything and how you can demonise people who ask questions, even if they happen to know what they're talking about. Um, and do you now, in retrospect, now that the, the sort of dust seems to be settling on that era, do you now think it was a sort of accident or a matter of hysteria, just sort of people getting overexcited and getting it wrong, or do you have a more a darker view. Well, I think it was a few different things. Um, I think it was hysteria. There was clearly mass hysteria going on. There was a huge panic. There was a refusal to deal with what was going on in a calm way. But there was also very clearly a desire to... I mean, every, almost every government in the world rolled out the same system at the same time. They all had their digital IDs ready. They all had their digital passports ready. They all wanted to, to use precisely the, 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 the technology that is, is capable of monitoring and scanning entire cultures to roll this stuff out. And it's not conspiratorial to say that vaccine passports and digital health IDs on a global scale were being discussed long before COVID happened. You don't have to believe that the whole thing is a pandemic to see that when it came along, they went, okay, let's slot this into the system that we had, we've been discussing for a long time. The rational, global, sensible, machine-like way to respond to this illness is shut everybody down, control everybody, monitor everybody, give them a digital ID and, and push them out, push them off the internet if they've got a problem with it, and it worked. <coughs> So I think it was, uh, you don't need to believe in a giant conspiracy to see that there was, there was a particular approach that was taken immediately, uh, partly because of the hysteria. And I'm quite convinced by the idea that because everything was, it was very difficult once you'd whipped everyone up into a state of terror, 
uh, to tell them actually it wasn't maybe that bad and maybe we should scale it down a bit. Uh, and when you've whipped everyone up into a state of terror, people then want the control mechanisms. They say, well, you, we need to be saved. Um, so I was, I was just really disturbed by how easy it is to control people by frightening them, actually. Um, which I probably should... Audience agrees. It's, uh, well, it's, you know, it's a, we should have learned that from history, but it's diff different when you actually see it happening around you. Um, and I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to play down COVID. It was nasty for a lot of people. I'm not somebody who doesn't think it, thought it didn't exist or anything like that. Um, but do, that, do that response it, was mad. Do, do you think it, it kind of made more intense your fears about the power of this, what you call the machine? Yeah, I think the, it did. The, <laughs> because very, I almost no one managed to resist it. No, and, uh, and the, the thing that really struck me is 10 years before, that couldn't have happened because nobody had smartphones. They were only able to roll out that system, especially in countries like Ireland, where they had a, a digital passport system, because everybody had a phone, and they just went along with it. Uh, the, certainly in Ireland, the level of conformity was terrifying. There was barely any dissent at all. It was just to see people lining up outside an Irish pub and scanning their phones to go in and have a pint of Guinness. It was heartbreaking, actually. It really was, especially when everybody already knew that the vaccine you needed to have wouldn't stop you spreading the illness in the pub anyway. Uh, it, was, it was just... Um, uh, the refusal to ask questions and the, the willingness to use that system is exactly what disturbed me. So it's quite possible to see that being used for any number of things in the future, as it already is being. And you don't have a phone? Smartphone? I don't have a smartphone. I have a little dumb phone, but, uh, which is my concession to modernity. <laughs> I'm getting more Luddite as I get older, I'm afraid. So there's nothing I can do about it. Um, let, let me ask about what your kind of actual life choice has been in response to all this, because... You know, the, we've called this talk resisting the machine. We've talked about some kind of political activism is one response that people might feel. Um, but what you've actually done really is, is sort of retreat. Um, you've, you've moved to this, um, this farm in the west of Ireland. Um, you are homeschooling your children. Is that that's right? Um, uh, yes, my daughter started going to a Steiner school recently, but apart from that, she's mainly been homeschooled, yes. They don't have phones? They don't have phones. So you're, you're they don't want phones, actually, which is my biggest, so they know the biggest triumph. They know, of course, they know about all their friends have got phones, or some of them have, but no, they actually don't want them, which is quite exciting. They don't, they don't see the appeal yet. See what happens when we get to 18. But. So I'm, I'm really kind of keen to work out what that response looks like, because for most of us, it's probably not possible. Hmm. You know, we can't move to a farm. Um, and I, and I, I wonder... Does that mean you've kind of given up on the modern world? And that is, you're like one of those sort of monks in the, in the dark ages, keeping Spiders. the lights. I've got a basement full of guns. <laughs> I'm waiting for the apocalypse to come. But does it mean you've given up on the modern world? Should, uh, well, should we still be out here in the middle that, of Westminster trying to fix the modern world? I don't know what that means. Or should, should we just sort I of mean, give I, up on it? I don't know this. It's... I don't know what it means, really. I mean, all, all, of, all we did was bought a couple of acres of land and tried to live on it in a different way and experimented with the, with the thing. Uh, my wife used to be a doctor. I used to write. We used to live in a city in England, and we decided to chuck it all in and go and find somewhere cheap that we could actually afford to buy and just try and live differently, and we thought we'd give it a go, and so we did. Uh, and it, so far, it's worked. It's not, a, it's not a revolutionary experiment that everybody should be following. Uh, it's just me and what I did, and loads of people continue to do it all over the place. There's nothing particularly special about it. I'm surrounded by people who've done something very similar. Rural Ireland is full of escapees from all over Europe, you know, actually. Uh, Germans and English people and, and, and a few Swedes, actually, Dutch people. 
sort of escaping from the cities and hiding down the lane. So it's just a thing. Uh, build your compost toilet and get going. But it's, it's you're not, you're not, there's no cutoff point. We talked about this a bit yesterday, right? Especially in the age of the internet, going to the countryside doesn't necessarily mean you're any more disconnected from anything. You could be more connected in your house in the country if you're online all day than you were, were in a flat in London where you haven't got a phone. So it depends what you mean by connected. There's no, there's no sort of us and them. There's no out there anymore, at least in the same way around here. So as much as anything, it's like an internal choice about how you relate to things, uh, which is true of everybody anywhere. So as I say, you can be connected all over the world in a very different, in, in a fundamental way. And giving up on the modern world, well, I'm in the modern world. I'm a suburban boy from Generation X from England. I'm, I'm not going to, you can take the boy out of the suburb, but you can't take the suburb out of the boy, even if he's in rural Ireland. So we're all in it. The question is how you engage with it. What, what sort of, where, what line, if you're going to draw any lines in your relationship with technology or, or with the machine, what would the lines be for you? How does this engagement affect your family and, and the sort of life you want to have? Those are questions everybody has all the time. And the answers are quite personal. You have to just do what you can do where you are, I think. There's, there's, it's very... It's very localized in that sense. There's never, a, as soon as a big picture answer appears, I get very nervous because they yeah, never I think work. It, it's still a, a, a fair question, I think, though, wh mm. whether we should be sweating and investing all of our time uh, in the kind of day-to-day -day arguments about how whether, you know, whether this civilization can be fixed, mm. whether the institutions can be righted, you know, whether we we can turn it back in an upward trajectory, or whether it's too big and it's doomed, in which case maybe there is wisdom in, in whether you do it privately and internally or more manifestly and actually move to a farm, but retreating from it. And, you know, where do you stand on that? Do you think we can fix it? Well, it depends what you want to fix, really. It depends what you want that trajectory to be. I don't like the trajectory of industrial society. I don't like the trajectory of the machine. I think it's going in a terrifying direction, especially with the development of AI, with transhumanism, all the stuff we were talking about yesterday in some detail. Um, the people who are running this stuff are very, very clear about their desire to end death, end aging, end sickness, recreate nature from the bottom up genetically, recreate new species of humans, build new intelligences. This is where we're going. We're going into this, well, they want us to go into it. I don't think it will actually work, but they're going into this future where they, it's like, I sometimes think these guys watched The Matrix and they thought the agents were the good guys. <laughs> and then this is, this is where we should go. It's like they've read all the sci-fi warnings of the last hundred years and then thought they were a guidebook. Um, to what should happen, and that's where the future's going. I don't want, I don't want to save that. I don't want to, and I think that's the inevitable trajectory of this kind of machine culture we've built. So I have no interest in trying to rescue that. Um, but that's not the same thing as trying to, I don't know, try and, trying to build a good culture for people where you can, and what, where you, which is, I suppose, what we all do. So I, I don't have any interest in saving industrial civilization for itself from itself. I do have a lot of interest in, to go back to right to the beginning, how you can live in a way that allows you to get back in touch with the things that it's basically annihilated, um, which, is, which is a human question and a very old question, not just a question we have today. It's just more intense today because of the technological power that we have. You mentioned AI. Mm. I reckon if you talked, if we had some Silicon Valley people here who are deeply involved in it, they might sound almost as sort of full of conviction and further oh, yeah. as, as we do, um, they would probably say, you know, what we're doing here is connecting the creativity of humanity. Um, we are, you know, taking our God-given gifts and, and doing the best we can with them by 
course, you know, by amplifying them, them and putting yes. them together and it creating a new collective wisdom, which is the ultimate human project. Why, why are they wrong? Well, some of them would say that, but you know what's really struck me at the moment is just, you'll all have seen this, the number of people developing AI systems who are terrified about what's happening. The, the people out there saying, oh, we need a moratorium on AI development, or we don't even know how this thing works, or we created an AI that's stalking a journalist and we don't know why it's doing it. There was a wonderful essay in Time magazine a couple of weeks ago that was written by a, an AI developer who proposed that uh, we needed to start bombing the data centers to prevent the AIs from, from gaining their own intelligence because it was going to be apocalyptic. Um, these are the guys building these things, right? These are not mad people like me on the internet with compost toilets. These are the people actually building them, and they're frightened of it. So I think in one sense it's, it's, it's a utopian project, but it's already going wrong. But you're right, and again, we were talking about this yesterday. I think that this, the Silicon Valley agenda, the transhumanist agenda, is extremely utopian and actually very religious. I think it's like it's... If you, if you, had, if you took the Christian religion, which they're all sort of steeped in because they're in America, uh, and you take out the actual bits about God and Jesus and things, you're, you're left with the, the desire for transcendence and, and utopia and life after death, living forever, universal justice, all of which are sort of Christian notions. Uh, and so they've decided they're going to build those themselves. That's what we're going to do. Uh, so it's very, it's, it's a religion, actually, in a, in a really broad sense. It's a religion. It's a utopian project. It's a desire to be God. Again, lots of these people very openly say we're, we're making God. Ray Kurzweil, who's the head of engineering at Google, he was asked if he believed, if he thought God existed, and he said, not yet. Not yet, because he's building God. Uh, and that's what's happening. So I think that it's, they're absolutely entirely convinced, many of them, this is, this is going to create a world. I've had conversations with, with these, some of these people and they've said to me, look, I want to, I want to create a world of justice where there's no suffering and there's no misery and nature is cruel and we have to eliminate the cruelty and they really think they can do it. That's exactly what it is. It's a giant utopian religious project in which technology is going to, going to lift us out of the, the kind of the slough of our of our suffering. I think that's what they think is going on. So there's a lot of it about these uh, sort of alternative religious impulses. We've, we've talked are. about a couple of them. <laughs> when I see thinkers I really, really admire who then become Christians, part of me is sad because I know that it just repels certain groups of people. In fact, possibly in a secular country like ours, the majority of people. How do we save the culture for those people who are not going to be attracted to a well, Christian solution. Yeah, I mean, I don't think religion combined with politics is ever good. I can't think of a situation in which that wasn't true. I think that these experiences I had when I was young in the natural world were actually religious experiences, not in an overt sense that I had a religious belief that sprang from them because I didn't know what that was even really at the time, but they were very clearly experiences of the divine, and I spent a lot of my life looking for kind of structures that could frame that. I was a Buddhist for a while, I was a sort of neo-pagan, I was a Wiccan, I... I've looked into mythologies, I've sat for four days in the woods with no food, I've done all sorts of things. And um, a few years ago, I was sort of stalked, stalked by Christ. This is a surprisingly common thing, it turns out. And I ended up being a Christian, I ended up as an Orthodox Christian after a, a sort of uh, a session of sort of panic and resistance because I didn't think I liked Christianity or what it was. And I ended up finding that actually it was a sort of put a lot of things into perspective, the kind of the grand cosmic story of, of what Christianity is, um, as opposed to the quite bleached out version that I thought I'd learned when I was young, is surprisingly good at telling us what's going on with ourselves and what the universe is. 
And so that's where I've ended up. Um, and it's been very life-changing. Um, but in terms of, you know, the minute you ask whether a religion can save a culture, then I think you're, you're in the wrong place because, you know, somebody once asked Saint Seraphim of Saroff, who was a great Russian saint who, I love Saint Seraphim because he befriended a bear in the forest. And if you ever see an icon of him, it's always got this bear in it, it's rather lovely. And somebody once said to him, what's the point of you sitting in this forest like a monk, praying all day, what good are you doing for the world exactly? And he said, if you acquire a peaceful spirit, then thousands around you will be saved. And I think that's as good a description of what religion's for as anything else. Um, and I certainly haven't acquired a peaceful spirit. Um, but you're not, if you start seeing religion as a kind of utilitarian tool to save a culture, then, then you can turn the religion into a very toxic thing. And it doesn't work anyway. And like you say, most people aren't interested, especially in Britain, which is probably the least religious country in the world, mm. actually. So I'm not interested in doing that. Um, it's just something that I happen to think is true. Something that's, that's something that's all of this stuff we've been talking about has culminated in. Um, and it makes a lot of sense to me. And I want to know how that manifests. I'll tell you what I do think. Um, it's really happening. And it's a lot of people, because of the times we're in, because of the kind of nihilism of the culture and, and the, the nihilism of this machine world, a lot of people, especially younger people, asking all the questions I asked, starting to turn to religion as well, and especially Christianity. And I know that because since I wrote about it, I'm getting so many emails I can't answer them from people in similar situations. Uh, I don't know how representative that is, but a lot of other people have told me it's something similar, that there's a, there's, a, there's a turning going on as people start to take this seriously again. Because we went through a phase of believing religion was a thing we'd left behind because it was superstitious nonsense. And then we looked at the thing that we'd created, which was a culture with no connection to the numinous, to the divine, to God, to anything beyond ourselves. And again, as uh, I quoted yesterday, I think I quoted G.K. Chesterton. He said, it's irreligion that is the opium of the people, because if you don't worship something beyond the world, you will worship the world. And above all, you will worship the strongest thing in the world, which at the moment is technology, which enables us to pretend that we're gods, which, by the way, is the thing the snake told us to do in the Garden of Eden. So it's not a very new story after all. Um, so I think a lot of people are starting to look at the kind of the emptiness of it and say, well, is this all there is? It doesn't mean they're all going to be Christian or end up going in the same direction as me. And I'm not interested in telling anyone they should. Um, but I think those questions are going to get louder and a lot of people are going to be moving in those directions. And so, yeah, so it's is, interesting. Is the, the lesson from that saint then that it is more of a, that the, the regeneration, if it is going to come, will come from lots of individuals, lots of people just well, trying to find a more peaceful way of life and then hopefully that effect spreads. Is that well, you have to change yourself before you can change anything else, don't you? And you know, as somebody who used to be a, a sort of left activist, I, 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 I saw, as you all see when you get involved in activism, I'm sure this is true of activism on the right as well, um, a lot of the people who think they want to make the world a more equal and loving place are actually hateful and psychotic, unfortunately. Um, and I, I can't help noticing that a lot of the people who are talking most loudly about love and tolerance at the moment are the least loving and tolerant people I've ever met. Um, and what's also interesting is I keep hearing from people like that that Christianity is bigoted and hateful and the rest of it. Um, and if I thought that was true, I wouldn't have become a Christian. But actually, the people I've met in, in, in my Christian journey have actually genuinely been loving and kind. Um, and it's very, very different from the kind of left activist circles I used to move in, where everybody is sort of angry and confused, including me. And that's not even a criticism. It's just a, it's, there's a sort of, if you try to change the world, 
everybody can see what's wrong. If you try to change the world without changing yourself, without looking for that um, peaceful spirit, then, then you get Bolshevism. You get every other revolutionary movement that thinks it can create a utopia and actually creates hell. Because that's the trap, I think. So you have to, to work on the spirit first. Think about Christianity, it makes you look inside yourself, as all, all, good, all, all, all real faiths do. And when you start to do that, it gets very awkward. Because then you start, <laughs> start to see all the things you didn't want to look at. But that's good. Then you start to think, oh, yeah, right, do I want to send that stuff out into the world or do I want to, to try not to do that and do something else instead? So mm. there, yeah. there was a concept we touched on that I think we should share with everyone here, which you wrote about and then we talked a little bit about, which is the, the cooked barbarian. Mm. Um, and since we titled this evening Resisting the Machine, that seemed quite a, a sort of practical and mm. interesting idea. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, well, this is something I wrote about recently. So I've been writing this long series of essays for two years, which is longer than I thought it was going to be, about what the machine is and where it comes from and how it manifests in the world politically and culturally and technologically and then what you can actually do about it. And that's the hardest bit, obviously. Um, but one thing I did was I read a book uh, by James Scott, uh, the name of which I've forgotten, but it's about... Um, it's, a, it's an anarchist history of Southeast Asia. It's very good, actually. And his basic thesis is that... Um, the people who are usually called indigenous people or tribal people or hill tribes or, or, or gypsies or the sort of people around the edges whose civilization tends to see as the, the undeveloped people who haven't yet been brought into the glories of, of, of machine culture are in many cases actually people who've deliberately forged lives designed to escape the reaches of the state which wants to tax them and put them into the army and take their labor or turn them into slaves. Uh, and it's quite a convincing picture he paints. Um, and he has this one particular story he tells, which I think is about China and how the Chinese state was trying to bring a, a people called the Li into the reach of the state. They wanted to, to sort of corral them and, and they found it very difficult. There, many of the Li were tribes in the hills and they were living in caves and you just couldn't get anywhere near them. So the, they regarded them as barbarians. But there were some Li who lived in the towns and in the cities and within the civilization's walls. Um, and so they referred to these, these people who lived out in the hills as, as the, the raw Lee, the raw barbarians. They couldn't get hold of them. But the ones in the cities, the ones living in the civilization, were the cooked Lee, the cooked barbarians. But they didn't really trust the cooked barbarians either because they, they, they suspected them of secretly collaborating with the raw ones. So they, outwardly, they looked very respectable and they lived within the city, city walls and they did all the things they were supposed to do. But under the surface, um, they were never quite trusted by the state because under the surface, they were still barbarians. And so I wrote an essay about this, and uh, I thought it's, it's quite interesting to see if you want to resist the machine, if you want to live differently, if you want to push against the direction of travel, to think about what kind of barbarian you are. Most of us can't be raw barbarians in this world if we'd want to be. But we can be cooked barbarians of different, of different stripes, of different levels, actually. One day we might be forced to become raw barbarians if we refuse our, our uh, digital currencies or our neural link in the brain or whatever it is that's coming. Um, but at the moment, being a cooked barbarian is not a bad aim, actually, and it's a response to what you just asked about whether you can escape from the machine or whether you have to stay in it. There's a, you don't have to answer the question of, am I right in here being part of this thing or am I out there as some kind of rebel on the fringes? You can be, you can be a bit of both. It's a bit of Outwardly ducking and diving. Exactly. Exactly. Internally so, resisting. Exactly that. Which, by the way, um, is pretty much exactly what the early Christians did and what a lot of Christians have done throughout history, because. 
Christians in St. Paul's words are told not to conform to this world. So Christianity is not rebellious in the sense that it's trying to bring down systems, but it operates on a set of values that aren't the values of the world. And so you have to be in the world, but not of the world. You have to be a resident alien in the world as a Christian, which is a phrase I quite like. So, you know, you're just living your life. You're not out trying to bring down the system, but you're not living with the values of the world. And if the values of the world get to the point where they interfere with your faith, then you have to go with your faith. You walk, you walk towards God and not to the world. And that's, that's happened to a lot of Christians in, in, in history. So it's another way of looking at it, yeah. But I like the idea of being a cooked barbarian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You talked about uh, Christianity as, as one, one thing, but of course it's a great diversity of many expressions of the Holy Spirit. And um, you also talked about your unwillingness to bring religion and politics together. Well, I'm wondering to what extent you've looked into, for example, Catholic social teaching, because I'm thinking that you're naming the problem really well, but I'm wondering if you're letting finance capital off the hook within Catholic social teaching, it insists on um, capital being constrained and it insists on the power of the state being decentralized. And I know you agree with those things. Uh, and the tradition of, tradition of Catholic social teaching helps us guide statecraft to avoid those problems, uh, okay. to uphold the integrity of the human being. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Catholic yeah. social teaching. Catholic social, well, I'm not a Catholic, so I could just get out of it that way, but I won't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, look, I'm, in, I'm as anti-capitalist as I've ever been. Actually, that's something that hasn't changed because capitalism to me is just an expression of that machine relationship that we have, this destructive, extractive relationship with the world. Um, so when I say that I don't like a mixture of religion and politics, I think what I mean is I don't like it when the state is overtly religious. That's what I mean. 
don't like religious states. I'm quite liberal in that sense, actually. Um, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not ever going to be a Catholic integralist or an Orthodox integralist or anything else. Um, so, but that's not the same thing as saying that religion shouldn't apply to everyday life. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Chesterton. I keep quoting him, and he's obviously a famous Catholic distributist. Distributism is my favourite economic system. Uh, it'll probably never happen, but uh, no, no good things ever do in political terms. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So I, I agree with that vision. I like that vision. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in it. Um, I, as ever, think that you have to start from the ground up with that stuff. And uh, I know there are people here who actually are starting from the ground up. And I think that's, that's the wise way and perhaps the Christian way. So as soon as you take over the state or try to get the state to impose it for you, um, you're doing something dangerous. But yeah, I, I don't know a great deal about it, but it's a, it's a vision I like. Yeah. I'm really interested in the politics of technology and um, how we all benefit from technology every day without benefiting, as you say, from technocracy. And I'm interested in what it, what it is in the human psyche that makes us so, so extreme, that makes us kind of take the pendulum of te technology and let it go so far into this anti-human realm of AI and stuff that's going to destroy us, rather than just like using it for extremes. and. Do you think it has anything to do with to be extremely controversial patriarchy and the fact that men are in, in charge of technology? Or could it be that men and women equally, we just have this drive to be really extreme about our, our kind of innovations and developments? Well, um, actually, I think it probably is the case that most of the guys in Silicon Valley are guys, actually. I think there is a bit of a left brain male solutionism thing going on. But when I look around me, I don't see any particular lessening in the appetite of tech smartphones for any for any of the women I know. So, um, I mean, I think it's more like, I mean, for me, it's again, to come back to the economic system, to come back to capitalism and its values, this, uh, but also more, more than that, to look at the sort of the value system of modernity, um, which really strips away, uh, well, relegates as, as superstition any relationship to nature or God or anything else that might see us as, as image of Dei, Dei made in the image of God and, and sees us simply as machines and once you've got a world that's stripped out anything numinous at all and simply sees humans as gene replicating machines and, and the world as a bunch of material that we can that we can manage technology is your God and technology is our God and so we have a completely unquestioning relationship to technology and especially digital technology if it's got a screen and a load of buttons we think it's cool and if someone gives it to us we'll play with it like children, and then we give it to our children to play with it too. And even though actually lots of us probably have a feeling that this isn't good, we do it anyway. And that's partly because the people who have designed it, who are indeed mostly the men in Silicon Valley, have created very complex algorithms that are, turn us into addicts. So this stuff is deliberate. <laughs> um, limbic capitalism, they call it. It works on the limbic system in your brain. It gives you a little dopamine hit every time you get a little like on your, on your Facebook or indeed your Substack. So... I think that we, are, we have been deliberately created as technology addicts by a bunch of people who have created a system that they know is addictive. Very telling to me that a lot of the guys in Silicon Valley send their children to Steiner schools where they don't have any technologies and they don't let their children have smartphones. Very interesting. They let, spend a lot more time in the woods than anyone else can. So I think that we have deliberately created a system in which we're addicted to this stuff and it's impossible to, to get away from it. And that's what it's designed to do. It, 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 it sucks information out of us to create the algorithm and it sucks money out of us all the time. That's, that's the purpose of the thing. Do you not think, I'm just going to try once again to make a defence for some of this stuff. Go on, go on. <laughs> do you not think that it's the very best of human instincts, which is a creative instinct? And that's what separates us. That's, what, that's, the, that's our kind of 
you know, cosmic drive is to make things more complicated, to make things more beautiful, to make things better than we found them. And that's, that's the drive to make technology. And, and it's always been like that. And, and it's very, it's kind of anti-human to want to say, okay, enough now, we're going to just live in the world as it is. What would you well, say that? Well, that assumes two things. Firstly, it assumes that nature itself doesn't have any kind of intelligence or sentience that we ought to be relating to. And secondly, it assumes that all creativity is good and all creativity isn't good. You know, we created nuclear bombs. We could probably agree that it was a bad thing that we should have done that. Um, so what value system is your creativity informed by? That's the question. What are you creating for? What sort of thing are you trying to create? What are you serving? Right? To come back to that question again, are you serving something beyond yourself? Are you serving community? Are you serving beauty? Are you serving God, if you believe in God? Or are you serving your curiosity? Are you serving your desire to make money? Are you serving your desire to make the world more efficient? You should be very careful if you're trying to serve that desire. I think our technological systems, our digital systems, serve money, they serve power, they serve profit, they serve this, this lust to make the world rational and explicable, this kind of left hemisphere. If you want to do the Ian McGilchrist discussion, which is an absolutely brilliant way of, of, of understanding what's happening. He was on happening. this here sofa just he was, a few weeks he ago. He was, and if you haven't watched the conversation with him, you should, because he's, he's, he's brilliant on this. He's not the only one who talks about it, but I've just finished his enormous new two-volume book on, 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 on the brain and the, and the philosophy behind it. But, you know, this technology comes purely from the left hemisphere. It's purely rationalistic, controlling technology. It has absolutely no love in it. You know, something, uh, something somebody said to me, an Orthodox Christian said a while back, they said, look, the internet is very good for conveying information and controversy. It can never convey holiness or wisdom. And that's true. So, fine, there's nothing wrong with conveying what information in What about our YouTube chat? Come on. From <laughs> unheard. Well, he, had, he hadn't seen unheard. That's why he said that. But, but I mean, it's... it's uh, he hadn't been exposed to you, Freddie, otherwise he wouldn't have said such a thing. But, but, you know, what are you serving? What are you serving when you create this stuff? That's the question to ask. Just following on from what you said there, I wonder if you're... When you say you don't believe in capitalism, or you don't, or you don't like technology, or don't trust technology, I wonder whether that's, those are the wrong things not to trust, because it's not it's the technology in itself that's wrong or indeed free markets in themselves that are wrong. It's how we in, behave in relation to them. Uh, money is great as a servant and terrible as a master. Technology is great as a servant and terrible as a master. And somebody talked about technocracy, that's making technology the master. So um, we wouldn't be here, would, unheard wouldn't be able to operate if it wasn't for capitalism and for technology. Uh, but they're, and they're great as servants. But, but, so I wonder whether, with your Christian faith, uh, there, is a, there, is a, there is a better way of thinking about technology and capitalism, which, which just makes them subordinate to much more important things. And, and if, if they are subordinate, then they can be incredibly uh, valuable. Well, I think that, as a Christian, everything's subordinate to your faith and to God. So in that sense, none of it matters as much as that. But I would make a distinction between capitalism and, and a market economy, actually. There's a significant difference. I don't have a problem with markets. I don't really like money and would love to live in a world without it, but we're not going to. Um, a market economy, and we talked about distributism, actually, uh, uh, the Chesterton's notion that we should have equally distributed small property and then we can do what we want with it as a kind of mid midway between socialism and capitalism. Capitalism is about 
the concentration of wealth and the concentration of resources and capital in the hands of a small number of people who everybody else has to work for. And that's a bad and tyrannical system. It's actually not a market system. A capitalist economy is not a free market economy. There's no free market because a few guys control everything. There's no free market in, 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 the, in the tech world because three or four companies control the entire internet. So it's not, it's not a free market at all. It's a fixed market. So I don't mind markets, but I do mind capitalism. And, and technology similarly. Um, I mean, look, humans have made technology since we invented fire. So we're not going to stop doing that. That's what we do. But there's a difference between a hammer and a keyboard. There's a difference between a, a scythe and, and, a, and a laptop. They do very different things. They serve different things. They have different levels of complexity. One of them, AIs can reproduce themselves. You know, axes can't. So again, it's not, it's not, it's, you're right. You can't make a, 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 a sort of um, pure distinction and say technology is bad. It's not possible to do that because technology is what humans are. But you have to say, who does it serve? Are there different kinds of technology? Are we really saying that an AI system is the same kind of technology as a ballpoint pen and a bit of paper? We're not really. We couldn't say that. They're qualitatively different. So there's, you need a critique of technology, which plenty of Christians have had. Ivan Illich had it. Jacques Ellul had it. Wendell Berry had it. There's a lot of intelligent Christian techniques of uh, critiques of technology. Not enough. I'd like to see lots more of them, actually. But so I don't think it's a question of a blanket refusal to engage in a thing. It's about having a critical relationship with it. And for me, the best answer I've come up with is that question of what does this serve? What does this serve and what does it do to our communities and to our, and to our life and to our humanity? Does it enhance it or does it destroy it? Does it make us dependent? Does it make us free? Those are the big questions, I think. Just thinking about um, the, the recent discussion about AI with ChatGBT, it's clear that a lot of the discussion in the public realm is really quite um, limited. It's down to, am I going to lose my job and so on? Whereas the things we're talking about are inevitably very abstract and as such, won't gain much traction with you know, the wider population. Thinking about uh, Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, there was a, a great observation in there about AI when he said that AI is going to treat us the way we domesticate animals. In other words, you know, we are the battery chickens of tomorrow. Uh, and thinking of, about um, metaphors like that and myths, as a writer, what, what do you think are the really powerful stories? I know you've mentioned the machine, that the, the myths and metaphors we need to try and have a much better public conversation about where the dangers lie. Yeah, that's a really good question, isn't it? Um, I mean, for me, I, I, I started an organization in 2009 called the Dark Mountain Project, which some of you might know about, and that was uh, a a network of writers and artists, it's still going actually, I don't run it anymore, but it was, it was supposed to be a writers and artists project which challenged writers and artists to actually write and create art as if we were really living in the world as it is and not to write novels as if it was still 1980 or something. You know, we really are living in this machine, things really are collapsing, the climate really is changing. How would you write if you believed you were in that time? Um, which funnily enough was a more urgent question then than it is now because more writers have engaged with this stuff since then. But but um, at the time, we wrote this little manifesto and, and we wrote in there about how we need new stories to, to come up with a, 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 a sort of solution or, or, a, or a reaction to that, which is, I look back on that now and I think it was wrong and a bit arrogant. <laughs> because actually, the more I looked into, the more I read myth, myths and, and religious stories and some of the stories from all over, the, all over the world, the older cultures, 
the more I could see that the story is always there. It's the same story playing out. It is the story of us wanting to be gods. It is the story of us wanting to fly like Icarus up to the sun or build the Tower of Babel or eat the tree of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge before we're capable of understanding it. It's like this is actually a really old story. This is not something new that we're doing, but we have the technological power now to make it much bigger than we've ever made it. There's an, this is something Christianity will teach you. There's always been a part of humans that have wanted to be gods. There's always been a part of us that's wanted to usurp God. There's always been a part of us that's wanted to control and manage the world. And maybe it is sometimes inspired by good motivations. Who, who can even distinguish between their good and bad motivations? You know, we, There's always been a part of us that wants that. And now we think we've got the power to do it. So funnily enough, I think that the warnings are all there in, in the midst and of almost every culture that I know of has a story that warns you about that. But of course, we don't listen to warnings. <laughs> As we're humans, we think it's not going to be this, not going to be the same this time. But they're all there. I mean, we we I think I mentioned earlier we've got a hundred years of sci-fi written about about precisely this. We've all seen Terminator. We've all seen The Matrix. We've all read probably lots of the novels from from uh, the the original novel about robots that was written by Carl Wojciech, I think, in the nineteen twenties. This stuff's been going on for a hundred years, and sometimes I think that. It's almost as if the writers and artists were channeling something prophetic that they could see coming. You know, it's like they could see this and they wrote about it and it was, these books were read as if they were sort of warnings. But, you know, we're sort of living in Brave New World now. So the warnings were there, but we, the, the trajectory happened anyway. So the stories are all out there. The question is whether the stories are valuable. Whether what's, they certainly don't stop us going where we wanted to go anyway. They don't stop us wanting to be gods. I don't think. Maybe we can never stop that. Great. I mean, not great. <laughs> great <answer. laughs> not great. Definitely not great. Yeah, I'm interested in you developing your thoughts about the machines. You've, you've, you've touched on it and talked about it, but you've written about it in great length. It's more than just the robots coming together. It's somehow a colonization of the human mind. It's happening most particularly without consent in many cases. And I think that's, you mentioned Brave New World, and that's perhaps the most insidious thing about it all, is that it's all happening in a quite happy way. You know, mm. people are embracing it, people are enjoying it, and people see it as a positive development. So we seem to be getting back to the area of sort of false consciousness and, and uh, that sort of original Marxist idea that people are drifting into false consciousness. Um, so the questions are, are twofold. Firstly, could you, could you go as deep as you can about the meaning of, of the machine as you term it? Uh, and, and B, what do we do? Because all these sci-fi movies are really about robots attacking humans. It's not like that, is it? Well, it's, it's happening in such a way that they are colonizing us rather than attacking us and yeah. colonizing our consciousnesses. And that's a far more tricky problem than the Terminator in some ways. Mm. And one of the best books about the machine I read was Lewis Mumford's book, um, The Myth of the Machine. It's a huge two-volume book which was written, I think, in the 50s or the 60s. It's the result of a lifetime's work. And Mumford's a very well-known critic of the machine. And Mumford talks about the machine, and I think he's right, as a tendency within us all. It's part of that tendency to be gods. It's that tendency to want to control and manage society. And once that um, manifests on a, a kind of political scale, then you get the creation of something that's almost a, a physical representation of a particular desire within humans. So Mumford's first illustration of the machine is ancient Egypt. 
which he says is a machine made of human parts, the human parts being slaves. And so they create these enormous pyramids, you know, these huge, thousands of people die, all of this just to serve the wishes of the pharaoh. There's a particularly good image in the book where he says that uh, an Egyptian pyramid and a modern space rocket more or less do the same thing. They use a vast number of resources, create this huge mechanistic system in order to get one man up to heaven. Um, this is good. It's a good way of looking at it. But it's a tendency, the machine. It's a tendency within us to manifest the world, to control the world, to, to, to realize our desire to be gods and masters uh, using technology. And what's changed is the technology. So in ancient Egypt, you had to use slaves. We don't need slaves anymore. We can make moral noises about why slavery is bad because we've got fossil fuels instead, which is our new, our new, our new race of slaves. Um, and we are now, as you say, quite rightly, I'm mean, looking if, if it was the Terminator, we'd all know where the goodies and the baddies were. So it'd be very simple if the robots were coming. But the robots are in here. So Brave New World is such a good story, and it's better than Orwell's 1984 for precisely this reason. I love Orwell, but Orwell was warning about the horrors of Stalinist totalitarianism, which have now gone, at least in Europe. Um, but Brave New World is actually warning about the, uh, the, the easy nature of controlling people through pleasure rather than pain. 1984 is all about, you know, obey the state or, or we crack your head and torture you with rats. No, Brave New World gets you to, you're, you're controlled through pleasure, you're controlled through sex, you're controlled through fun, you're controlled through games, you're controlled through your, your, your pleasure centres, um, which is where we are, it's pretty much exactly where we are. Fantastic story actually by E.M. Forster called The Machine Stops. If you haven't read that, go and read that because E.M. Forster never wrote a sci-fi novel, he never wrote anything remotely futuristic except this one story called The Machine Stops, which is written about 1912 and it's, it's about the internet and the entire way we live. They're all living in the pod and eating bugs and looking at the internet all day. It's amazing. And it's about how the whole thing crumbles away because it has no connection with nature. But yes, the machine is within us and that makes it difficult to resist because it's fun and it's pleasurable. And so that's why I keep talking to people about drawing lines. And you're right, the sort of thing we're talking about here is not popular because people can't see the problem. Because the, in many cases, they can't see the problem. I think that maybe will change with AI. I think possibly if the AIs do the things that they're tech guys really think they're going to do, then people might start to see what's like happening. What? Sorry? Like what? What kind of thing? Well, if they really become as dangerous and, and as controlling and uh, as, as they seem to, be able, seem to be capable of doing already when you're having conversations with them, if they really start, you know, if you, if you offend the chatbot and it hacks into your bank account and empties it, which, which, by the way, is a possibility, all of these things could happen. If you really do see AIs replicating themselves and if you really do get a reality collapse in which, you know, an AI only needs to record three seconds of your voice before it can perfectly replicate it. So there's already a situation, this has already happened, in which AIs are being used. They, they, you get a phone call, it says it's a wrong number, but they've recorded three seconds of your voice and then they use that to talk to your son and ask your son uh, to give you your social security number because you've forgotten it and then they empty your bank account. This is happening already, right? So you're, you're already moving into a reality collapse situation where it's not going to be possible to know when you look at a video of Freddie Sayers saying something intelligent on Unheard, whether that's an AI version of Freddie Sayers. You know, this, this stuff is possible. This stuff is possible. So uh, maybe, maybe this will, will, will wake people up a bit more, but it's very difficult to know what to do with it. So that's why I think that uh, the best solution I've come up with is to be a cooked barbarian and, and draw your lines. Where are you going to engage with technology and, and where are you not going to go any further? What's your red line? That's, the, that's a personal question to, to think about. Thank you. So it's a kind of resistance. 
including to pleasure. It's, yeah, well, you know, that's the thing. It's, look at this from a Christian point of view, right? You have the, why are Christians so concerned about not conforming to the world? What the world does is it presents you with lots of passions and, and they just get you completely mired in all the everyday stuff of the world and that takes you away from God. So you can't be the thing you were supposed to be, which is connected to the divine all the time because you're too, too busy with the sex and the drugs and the rock and roll, right? Which, which are fun, we like that. So the reason that, say, Christians are very big on chastity and all these kinds of things is not because they're Puritan killjoys. It's because if you don't cut that off, you can't focus on the divine. And by the way, this is true of every other religion I know as well. So that's already an understanding of what an, an addiction to worldly passion is and what, where it takes you, which is just into the machine, actually. So, yeah, it, it is that. It's a, it's a spiritual discipline, actually. I'm not pretending I'm very good at that, by the way, but I can see that that's the answer. You've written before about how in your experiences with paganism and Wicca, you had some, I forget, I don't know how you put it, but weird experiences. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and also whether or not you feel that that stuff butted you up for Christianity, so to speak, whether it served a purpose in untethering you from a purely materialistic world hmm. uh, and how sort of functional it was in your journey, because I'm guessing it wasn't irrelevant. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, I became, a, I became a Wiccan, technically a Wiccan priest, because if you join a Wiccan coven, you become a priest. So I was a priest. There we are. I'm not sure which god I was serving. Um, but you, you, get, you get involved in Wicca, which is a sort of neo-pagan nature religion, which mashes up lots of bits of the Western mystery tradition, a bit of Masonic stuff, a bit of Aleister Crowley, a bit of crystals, a bit of everything else. It's a kind of mashed up new new faith, which contains some interesting parts, but also some dodgy bits. Um, but I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go into detail about what things happen, but basic, the basis of Wicca is that you're working with the, the, the old gods of the natural world. So you're sort of calling them up and then asking them to do things or, you know, talking to them in certain ways, communicating with them. And it's all, it's, it's sort of partly comical and partly sinister, actually, because people sort of get to choose their own god. So if you fancy worshipping Odin, you can do that. Or maybe you fancy worshipping Zeus, you can do that. You can just grab a god from the Pantheon and work with it, and which was never very particularly convincing to me. Um, but there's something, yeah, there's something about it, because what you're doing, and this is true of the whole of the world of the occult, is you're basically out there opening up portals to the unknown world, and you don't know what's going to walk through them. And things actually do walk through them, because there are things out there. Um, but I do think that... That sort of experience of the numinous, good what and bad. What sort of things walk through them? Ah, uh, hard to say exactly, but you know, I, all I can say is that when certain spells or rituals are performed, dodgy things happen to certain people. Actually, um, usually by accident. Uh, all I, all the people I knew involved in Wicca, working with these gods, so-called, had very broken lives. Actually, because they're not gods from a Christian perspective at all; they're demons. So probably don't want to go too deep into that. But there's a whole world of weirdness out there. There really is. But what it does do, the bright side of these kind of nature religions, is they do really open you up to, to nature itself. They really do open you up to the forest that you happen to be working in, and they really do give you a felt sense <coughs> of the divine in the world. So I think there's, a, there's, a, there's also a, a way that, on the one hand, Christianity dragged me out of that quite bodily. I felt that I really had to stop doing it because it was dangerous. And I wasn't seeking to become a Christian, but that was what took me out of it and into Christianity um, because I felt like somebody was grabbing me by the scruff of the neck and saying, get out of here, it's like a rescue operation. Um, 
But on the other hand, it opens you up to the fact that there are many layers of reality that are not the same as this one, which is something I've actually always believed since I was a child, but I didn't have a, didn't have a perspective on it. And again, when you look into the, the cosmic picture of the Christian faith, it's very strange. You know, it's, it's full of weird things like Nephilims and cherubims and lots of different layers of reality and angels and demons. And, and again, so is every other faith I know from Buddhism to Islam. They all tell you that there are a lot of layers of reality and you can only really experience one of them. So, yeah, I think that's, that's the, the weird answer to the question. Yes, things, you ha said, things happen. You said that where you are in Ireland, there's a, almost a kind of Christian version of that in that there are still, the, the landscape is still got holy wells and local saints and there's a sort of, do you feel like there is a bit of a, uh, enchanted yeah I do mystical and landscape here's the thing I love about this I'm sometimes I think I sort of went to Ireland to accidentally discover this but it was true here as well um, that Christianity again like any 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 every culture I know of has had an engagement with the divine in some way and it's usually at least partly through the landscape that was true here uh, until the Reformation we had a lot of shrines and holy wells and all sorts of things and they all got trashed uh, but in Ireland you can't walk five yards without tripping over a holy well or an island where a saint lived or a cave that a hermit lived in or and that's not even including the pre-christian megalithic tombs and stone circles and everything else it's very much in the land ireland is still a country that's got a holy mountain that people walk up on their knees every year and then and, and then have a little mass at the top um and a holy well a holy a holy lock with an island in the middle that people still do a pilgrimage at and you know it's it's much much weaker than it was but it's still there and there's a sense in which it's actually in the place you know there's something in the place. I've always felt this. If you can, you can go to a stone circle and you can stand there and you can feel something going on that isn't really. This is, this is me being open to the world, mm. as you brought up mm. at the beginning, for better or for worse. So England, always, England always not so much. That. Well, it's still here. It's still here, but it's just buried under more layers, I think, because in Ireland it was there much more recently. But you can still find it here. You can find it on Lindisfarne. You can find it in any number of little sites. You can find it in Avebury. You can find it in... St. Govan's Chapel in Pembrokeshire. There's all sorts of places it's there. It's just you have to look harder, I think. When you come back to cities like London, having lived in the countryside for a long time, what is your feeling that you get when you walk around big cities like London? Hmm. Few people this week have talked to me since I've been here for like just over a day have started talking to me about William Blake, um, who I think is the great English Christian mystic with his own very strange vision of the world who operated in London famously during the Industrial Revolution like right in the heart of the beast and could see what it was and who kind of wrote and drew about it in a very profound way so it's possible to do it in the city I mean I, I, I told a little story yesterday about how I, when I when I got here I was walking down Victoria Street and I went into Westminster Cathedral because I thought it was an Orthodox church it's got a big dome it turned out to be <laughs> Westminster Cathedral but there was a mass going on and the Eucharist was happening. And so I sat there and that felt like a, a, a nice introduction because I was, I arrive in London. If you, if you live out in the country, you can taste the air when you come into a city and you can see the lights and it feels very weird. So I was sort of walking down the street thinking, oh, I'm not sure what I feel about London. But that was a great experience. But then I walked out and the first thing you see when you walk out of Westminster Cathedral is this huge kind of armadillo dome of glass opposite full of shops. It's like the Temple of Mammon opposite the temple of the, of the actual temple. So, but you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of religion in London. It's the most religious part of Britain now, full of churches and temples of all kinds. It's all here and London in particular, my family comes from London. I have a very mixed relationship with London. I, I'm always running away from it and then I sort of get sucked back in. It's like, you know, it's like the gangster who just gets called back to do one last job 
You know, yeah. I got sucked back in. Um, so there's no escape from London. Um, but yeah, it's, it's got so many layers of history, this place. I mean, I was in Lambeth Palace earlier today and you walk past Westminster Abbey, you've got centuries of this stuff here. It's all in here as well. So, you know, I, I find it harder to find it in a city personally, but it's all here. Uh, William Blake can find it. So it, it's, it's built up over so many centuries, so many strange little holy mysteries in the city as well. It would take someone other than me to find them, but they're definitely here. Have you got a set of working priorities for what one needs to do when they develop their small-scale resistance to the machine? Hmm. Well, I keep, I keep saying it's a very personal choice. Everybody's situation is different, so I'm always reluctant to pretend I can give people advice in that sense. I mean, I suppose my, my things that I have done, my principles, if you like, have been firstly have as much time in contact with nature as you possibly can, with non-human nature. Um, and with human community. So in your case, actually, the family, as you say, it is a very rare thing, um, especially in Britain. To have that, that's very important as well. Have an intelligent relationship with technology of the kind we've just talked about. Have a critical relationship to it. And be, 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 like a, be like the Amish on technology. I'm always talking about the Amish. They have a very intelligent relationship with technology. Any new piece of tech comes into an Amish community, they test it out for six months or a year to see what the impact is on the community. And then they have a big meeting and decide whether they want to continue using it. So whether it's a car or a smartphone or a landline or whatever, it's an intelligent way to do it, actually. So have as much contact with nature, build a human community, have an intelligent relationship with technology. Um, those are probably the big things. And they, they can manifest in any number of different ways in, in a human life. Um, but it's all about that. You know, if we come back again to the thing we talked about at the beginning, this this, what is the actual meaning of this? What does it mean to be a person? What is, what is the natural world? What is the world? How can you experience the thing that the machine is trying to take away from you all the time? That it's trying to convince you that you live in this rational robot world. What's underneath that? What's in the heart? How do you get in touch with it again in, in other people and in nature? And if technology takes you away from it, take the technology away. And as I say, people have different circumstances. So there's no blanket rule, but that's that's the best I could do, I think. And it's always a work in progress as well. You know, the compromises happen and all sorts. But, you know, it's a very difficult time to try and do any of this stuff because this, this is almost impossible on a daily basis to exist, for example, without a smartphone. There's one, right? <laughs> See? Even in this fascinating conversation, somebody's still checking their email. Can you believe it? It's shocking. Probably more interesting, <laughs> more, more interesting than what I've got to say. But this is, this is the point in seriousness, you know, my 75-year-old mother-in-law has had to get a tablet because it's the only way she can access her bank account. She doesn't even know how to use it. This is the way it goes. It's happening all the time. So it's very, very, very difficult to do it. It's more difficult all the time. So that's why you have to think about where you can draw your lines and what you're prepared to put up with and how far you're going to go. But also just to be thinking about what this stuff wants from you. There's a very good book called What Technology Wants, which you should read. Actually, it's by Kevin Kelly, and he's, a, he's one of the great Silicon Valley idealists, and he thinks... As you were saying earlier, he was putting exactly this view. Technology uh, it doesn't limit us. Technology completes us. Uh, the technium, as he calls it, what I call the machine, he calls the technium. That's what allows us to have our human potential. And uh, We should ignore the Luddites. We've got to go forward. It's all going to be great. But he thinks, as I do, that technology is not a neutral force. It has a will. It wants something. That's what the book is called, What Technology Wants. And he thinks it's taking us in a certain direction. It's almost godlike. It wants to fulfill itself. Something is using us to create itself. He says, think about that, it's a terrible image. But he thinks it's great. We are 
creating almost the next phase in evolution through using technology. And perhaps we'll replace ourselves, but that will be good because that will be a fulfillment. That's what technology wants. Um, so what does technology want from you is a really good question to ask every time you, you engage with it. Paul, thank you so much. We, we said we would tackle resisting the machine and we end there with literally that was the first three principles to think about. So we've, I feel we've really delivered. We've done Paul, it. We've done it. Paul, thank you so much. Um, please don't be frightened off by us and in the city. Come back. No, I'd love to. I'm, I'm you know, apart from anything else, it's, it's, a, it's got a very nice bar downstairs. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> um, speaking of which, the bar is open, as is the restaurant, in case anyone is hungry. Thank you all and uh, see you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.